It was like going into a bat house. It was that dark. If you went down there, it was like, as soon as you went down there, you were grabbed. And it was like, so I was like, Freddie, no, 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 no. We met at the bar just to make it clear to him. He goes, oh, you're that bloke. I can't, I, I remember talking about Queen and Billy. He was talking about all these records that he loved at the moment, which was um, Michael Jackson's new one, uh, The Police, some other stuff, uh, The Fix. Um, anyway, it, it was a great conversation. It was one of the, it just, I'm sorry I skipped, but Bill Bauman got me into the anvil and, and, and that, that great moment in my life. So thank you, Bill. Wherever you are, Bill, thank you. <laughs> to the anvil. Yes. <laughs> so let me paint the picture of the anvil for them across the ocean. Okay. Right. <laughs> sawdust, on the, sawdust on the dance floor. That's right. I was going to say on the west side, in the meatpacking district area, in the city part at night. It's it, The neighborhood was rough back then. There was a hotel above it. That's right. There's a hotel above it, which is still there, but the Anvil, yeah, it's, it's Anvil's no there. Anvil's no longer there. And Anvil has now been departed. The Anvil, the Mine Shaft, all those great clubs that were underground gay clubs, very underground gay clubs, um, are no longer there. Where Anvil goes. Yeah. I moved I moved to 16, 16, no, 17th Street and 8th and 9th. As my first apartment, when I got the job at Danceteria, I was 18 years old. And I moved out of my, when I got that job, and it looked like it was steady, I moved out. I moved down to, to that neighborhood. At that time, it was mostly Puerto Rican, that block. Now it's fabulous. And you can't even get in there. It's Chelsea, you know what I mean? Back then, they didn't even call it Chelsea, really. But but it was it was seedy. It was it was my kind of New York. I got to tell you. I mean, I, I that that's the New York that I love. It was seedy. There was transvestites down the block. Uh, there was there was uh, you know Mars also came out of the meatpacking district. You know later on, um, but it was full of life. And and now it's it's just overpriced and too fabulous for itself. As far as I'm concerned. That was a gentrification process that happened. Yeah. Well, it came, it, the, village, the village moved up to Chelsea and now it's now it's Hell's Kitchen. Now it's now it's basically the whole, you know. You, you know, back in the day you wouldn't walk, you'd be afraid to walk at night and you'd get robbed or something. Now it's I like I was no, I <laughs> no, I mean that's that's a New York club the Bronx. <laughs> Hey, let me tell you something. That was a New York clubbing that we all loved back then. The rougher it was, the better it was. Exactly. exactly. I think you painted a good picture of it. Kind of try. You know, it's hard because now people come to New York, they go, oh, it's so beautiful. Back then, I said, it was not like this. Oh, the packing district is, 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 it is beautiful. Almost too beautiful. Because when I go there, it's, I have these memories and it's just like, it, it 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 kills me when I go there now. You know, you got Apple, you got Keels, you got <laughs> whatever else. 
Remember, we used to see the blood on the street from all the butcher houses, all the all the butcher, all the blood on the street. You smell the death in the area. The meat was in the street. They would push the meat. Yeah, push the meat around. Like get away, move. It's like we would come out of clubs six, seven in the morning, and they would get in the trucks loaded. Oh, it was crazy. I, that's one thing I hated about coming out out of, out of after hours was always I was always praying when I came out of after hours whether I was playing there or not, that it was raining because I hated the sunlight at seven in the morning or eight in the morning. I'd be in the cab light, like, like ah, hating myself. Why am I doing this? <laughs> how many years, the nightlife, but how, the, many years was, how many years did you spend at Danceteria? Uh, I would say five years, five years. That's a picture of the second floor. At its, I would say that that would that looks like around eleven thirty at night. <laughs> it's not quite packed yet. By one o'clock, it would be packed, and I would close all the lights. And John Argento, the, the owner, never, never Rudolph. Rudolph never had a problem with the lights, and and like I said, they never told me what to play. Um, but. Um, I would turn all the lights off because I knew people like to dance in the dark. People don't like light. Like the Palladium was a different story. They had a light show. And that was a toy that I used. But at Danceteria, um, the first floor had lights. But I, I would turn, and the second floor had lights, which I keep on. But the back lighting lights, people would like to go back there and do their own thing. So I would always turn lights off for them. And um, the crowd appreciated that, I believe. You know, and when I say that they never asked me what to play, I, I was pretty much blessed throughout my career with with um, with Rudolph being there at, at three clubs that I played at Mars, Palladium and Danceteria, along with Yuki Wananabe, um, who owned the Mar who owned Mars. Um, he never they never told me what to play. Only time. That I that comes to mind when we opened up at Southampton Danceteria. John Argento, the owner, said, I was DJing one night and he said, put on a long tape or something, a reel to reel, because we're gonna go to we're gonna go to Heartbreak and we're gonna listen to what they play there. Because you're gonna have to play a lot of that stuff. I was like, Really? You're gonna go to Heartbreak? And, and I, I knew the crowd there. I was like, Really? I'm gonna go to Heartbreak. So it was a very yuppie crowd. Uh, like stockbrokers and stuff and suits. So I was like, yes, Jerry's going to turn into that. So we went down there in his John DeLorean automobile. It was great. And um, just a perfect, just, just perfect 80s, John DeLorean, you know, automobile going to heartbreak. And we went in there and I heard what they play and they're playing the Supremes and they're playing, you know, Sam Cooke and all the Motown stuff. And, and basically, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get all that stuff and I'll, I'll, I'll rock that. No problem. But what turns out to be, when we went to Southampton, Rudolph imported a bunch of people on the first weekend from New York City, from our, from Danceteria, to come out there. And it was like, I'm not playing Motown for this crowd. They, they want to hear what New York people, the, the New York club, they're coming to Danceteria to hear Danceteria stuff. So I, I stuck to what I knew and I did a little set of like rockabilly into um, Motown stuff. And that went over great, but 
But I never, ever changed it, never, ever went to the heartbreak thing at all. People came to Dance Theory Southampton because they wanted to get that experience of what Dance Theory was like. They, if they wanted that, they could go down the road to any other club in the Hamptons, you know what I mean? But do you know what? It, it, nobody understands that unless you're in the position you're in when the owner tells you that. It's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And then it also works both ways. They'll tell you play what you want. And then when you got to Southampton, say that you were thinking it was going to be like the New York crowd and say Rudolph didn't bring those people, you may you may have had a problem. So it worked in your favor this time that you yeah. were prepared. You no, know? I, was, I, was, I was always prepared. Uh, I was a stickler about records. Uh, I brought six crates of records wherever I played. Six crates. I never, ever, knew what I was going to play every night. There might have been a mix. Like, I heard Jim Burgess do a mix from Smack Dab in the Middle into Ian Dury's Reason to Be Cheerful that I do till this day. It goes, Reasons to Be Cheerful, part three, then bam, 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 bam. And it goes perfect. And I heard Jim Burgess do that on the radio one night, who's a who's my second hero. Not, not in order or anything. But Jim Burgess, technically, to me, was a genius when it came to DJ. And and uh, I listened to him when I was very young and before I even made it into Manhattan. And um, But I brought music with me that I was prepared to play to anybody who came into the door. If it was a blacker crowd, if it was a, a Hispanic crowd, if it was uh, a more white crowd, I was prepared. And I, I would play, I would play, and if they gave me back, I would give them more. They took away, I would give them something else. That's how I played. And I never, I, I knew, I know, I know guys that would play the same mixes every night, or 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 take out five records at a time and know that they're going to play that in a row. And I never got that because you never know what the crowd's going to do from record to record. One mix could be great one night, and the next night. It doesn't work the same way. It just, that's the way it is. It, 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 it's like that. And I don't know, it's, it's just a vibe in the room. It's organic. Yeah, it's organic. Exactly. Homogenized. It's a real homogenized thing that it just has to be at the moment. Yeah, it has to be at the perfect moment. Also, I believe it has to be in you. What you did that day, for me, affected me that night. If I was having a bad day, I go to the bar before the night starts. I have a vodka, maybe two, and start the night up. Because if I was in a bad mood, um, something was bothering me, I had to get out of that and get into my music. Um, for instance, a great, great, great story. I'm not really a great story, horrendous story. I was zigzagging in my Peugeot, getting to Danceteria on Fifth Avenue. And I, no, it was Park Avenue. And I didn't realize why everybody stopped. There was a green light. And I'm driving. I'm like, beep, beep, beep. But I'm zigzagging there because I'm late as usual. And all of a sudden, I realized, and I'm blasting my music. I realized at the last minute why everybody stopped. There was a siren, a lamp. Ambulance coming, bam, took out my whole front 
car. I was glad I was alive. The, the tow truck came, picked my car up. There was a line down the block at Dan's interior. Rudolph was in the front, saw the car. He came, I brought my records in. It was, it was hanging off a tow truck. I, I bring my records in. Rudolph came up to me, brought me a bottle of, I don't know if he knew what I drank, but he just brought me a bottle of Johnny Black and said, here, Freddie, start the music, please. <laughs> because there was people waiting and I was the only DJ on the set that night. Don't, and don't, look, don't sometimes, look. Sometimes, sometimes DJ, sometimes uh, the, not Palladium, but Dan Soteria would have four DJs. There was five floors. The third floor was the only place that didn't have a DJ. There was a restaurant and a video lounge. And um, Congo Bill was on the fourth floor. The second floor had a DJ. And the first floor had a DJ. Um, and I also had videos also um, that Rico used to play. And uh, it was uh, it was a that night turns into a magic night. It was a great night, even though I told my car. And I'll never forget that. It was just like one of the great stories. And he made my night because he didn't even come up to me with drink tickets. He just came up to me with a bottle. Start the night. <laughs> it's a banger. Here's your night. Let's go. Yeah. It's been done. It's over. Next. Yes, put it behind you. Yes. Just worry about what's in front of you. Exactly. Those people in front of you now. Don't worry. Just look in front. That's <laughs> yesterday. This is today. Exactly. That was, that's not quite the... Uh, it's close, because I remember how he used to speak. <laughs> right, so, right. You, know, you hear that fabulous. like... It's fabulous. If you go to... If you go to... And I just saw this the other day. If you go to their website, Dance Theory website, he still has a... What they... what you If you call Dance Theory up, they had a, an automatic voicemail, and they have this voicemail of Rudolph speaking, you know, we welcome uh, socialist transvestites, uh, <laughs> all kinds of things. Socialist <laughs> transvestites. Does <laughs> so it mean that they're communistic or they're socialistic? Which one is it? <laughs> we invite gay, straight, communist, socialist oh, yeah. transvestites. Yes, exactly. That's the way that club was. It was everybody. And everybody that worked there, the bartenders, the elevator workers, uh, they all had their own following. It was everybody was a star in that place. You know, but you know, you put something really important before you say, I wanted to bring this out. Back at that era of time, music, like before house music really took off and the constant tempos of say 121 to 128 were your night. What was your night like? Because I heard rock, but I'm hearing how you were able to change to BPM through the night. A lot of places you couldn't do that. That was the, that was the beauty of playing there. And that was the beauty of, of to, for that place to be my first major place to play. That's the way I played everywhere after that, because that's what I was known for, to play a house, to play rock and roll in the middle of a set. To put on Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting by Elton John in the middle of Saturday night, you know, and everybody going crazy out of the middle of a house set, putting on Jaws, and then putting on the Rolling Stones or the Clash, you know, you had to break it up 
in a way that was creative. You couldn't just go from a house record into a rock and roll record. You had to, you had to use your imagination, you know, and my imagination flew wild when I heard Cayman's play, because he would play things from out of space, you know, and, and I was like, I could do whatever I want here. This place is like, a, like no other club because I, I, as a young, as a young man, I would go to townhouse 48 inferno and, and underground, which I later played and, 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 and garage. And they didn't do that. So this was this place. I could bring, bring my rock and roll roots back into the fold. And it was, it was great. It was like, you know, and, and that, and, and at that time, there was bands like Culture Club, The Clash, The Jam, that were putting out dance music that no other clubs were really playing. You know, like Vinyl Mania had another store just for that. You know, I would go get my records at Vinyl Mania from Manny Lehman, and then I would go across the street to the alternative place and, and, and spend another $100, you know, every Thursday night or Friday night. You know, before I, because that was the thing. There was about 10 of us that were really breaking records at that time. Like, who broke that record? You know, Mark broke a lot of the records. Larry broke a lot of records. I broke some records. You know, Justin Strauss and Aria broke from records. Um, Bruce Forrest. Bruce, Bruce Forrest. Forrest and Better Days broke a lot of records. You know, it, it, was, it was like, you know, not even records sometimes. Broke, people bringing cassettes like all the playing a cassette and i was the first one to play that crash goes my love so i was like i got first dibs on that i broke that record it was like a little a little like a little convention of djs that had their their names on records that break you know and it was important to to be the first one to play that record it really was and that was fun What's the most, besides the Lolita Holloway record, like, for example, we all know about Mark Kamen's with the Madonna situation. Was there a record somebody brought you that you discovered and helped through that club get signed? I know for a fact, like, New Shoes, I Can't Wait. Um, I brought that to Bruce Carbone after I played it the weekend. I said, people, I played it, played it three times, Bruce. You got to, you got, and Larry the Asgar, um, you got to, you got to, you got to hear this record, you know, and they, they signed that record right away. You know, Bruce had great ears and Larry had great ears. They were, they, they made a great team, great dance team. Um, they were known for that voices of fashion. I played first and then they, they let me do a mix of it. You mean only, only in the night? Only in the night. Yeah. I mean, there, the, the thing is that, Danceteria let me play house and a little freestyle. I know I was never a big freestyle person per se, but I did play a lot of it on the radio because that's what Hot 103 wanted me to play. And after one o'clock, I went into what I really wanted to play when I was playing on the radio. For from eleven to one, I gave them what they want from from Studio Fifty Four and stuff like that. Was that was that Studio Fifty Four Hot One One Three done to Eddie Rivera? At the um, no, that was done to Bob Caviano. Bobby did carry uh, Ray's brother, right? Bob yeah. Caviano, right? And Larry would play on Thursdays. I would play on Fridays. Louis played on Saturdays, and then we would switch it up sometimes. 
And um, that the funny thing about that, uh, a good story about that is after after playing really what they their set list, they never gave me a set list to play, but I knew their audience wanted to hear freestyle and that they were coming in. They, they promoted it so much on Hot 103. It was a freestyle station. It really was. Um, so I did my hot mixes to make it more enjoyable for me to play, like the Cover Girls mix and Michael Jackson and 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 what other mixes that I did that slipped my mind. I did uh, NXS. I did George Michael. I did... Um, uh, Jody Watley, uh, some other ones that are that were lost in my unit that got flooded, but that's another story. That's <laughs> a shame. <laughs> but but will I after one o'clock? I said that was the time that all right now I could do my house thing and I could really play my classics and this this is what I and, and, and you know Larry would come at that time and because he knew the. He, he wasn't really into freestyle at all. So, so we would come and, and I would play my thing. But I made this joke record with, with a guy named Pablo Toto. His name was Paul Trinidad. And as a joke, I did it on an A-track at home. It was called Dame Chocha. And I put it on a reel-to-reel and the place went nuts. They were going, they, he goes, anybody say Dame George? And the place was Dame. I mean, it was like, I was like, this is a joke. I made this as a joke. I didn't mean this to be real. And Aaron Fuchs was there from Tough City. And he said, he came into the booth. He was like, what is this? I was like, this is just a joke record. It's not meant to do anything. I'm, I, I, I mean, it's eight track. I, I can make it better. He goes, no, don't do anything to it. I want it. And, he, and Aaron wasn't known for his money. He paid us cash. I don't want to say how much, but it was a lot for him. And from that relationship came the relationship that brought on Corporation of One. Pablo Toto was born out of that. We made three albums out of it. And we made some like good, good money from Aaron Fuchs, which was which was I was told was like, you know, taking money from uh I I don't know what to say. But it was it was very hard to get money from him. Let's put it that way. Basically, like from Meyer Lansky, you had to get no money. Exactly. I was going to say something like that. I didn't want to go there. But so I want I I played this thing at one thirty. But at the at the station, they still had me going, which I didn't know. There was a person there. I'm not going to mention names. He was there. He got let go because of that, because he, he was supposed to turn me off. He had me. So in every taxi cab in Manhattan and every party going on in Manhattan, they had me playing house into Dame Choche. The record starts, hello, hello. Is anybody out there like to eat pussy? Because my name's Pablo Toto. Boosh, dash, boom, boom, dash, boom, boom. Stupid beat, just the stupidest hip hop beat you could manage that I just played for stupid. And the reason why we came up with it was we constantly would have Scarface playing in my apartment on 16th Street. And, 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 and we just got the idea to do a stupid record like that. And, it, and Pablo was there and he was like, we're really going to put this out? 
this, this, this record is going to come out. And we made a whole album of X-rated numbers. Like, and, and the only X-rated number that wasn't was Ecstasy. By the, we did a remake of Ecstasy by Barry White. And it was a really a great version of it. Um, but we did Cho Chow Beach, which became a kind of a little underground cult classic, and which was really Orchard Beach, but Cho Chow Beach. So I know we're not, wait, supposed, wait, to, wait. They were hanging we're not supposed to curse on this. But That's all right. Cho Chow, Cho Chow, Cho Chow. It's in Latin. But here's the thing. Let me explain, everybody. Freddie's crowd at studio was a Puerto Rican crowd, Bridge and Tunnel. So, yeah, for, yeah. of course, for him to play that that time of night, that crowd erupted because hearing Puerto Rican li- lyrics, Spanish lyrics coming from the, the barrio style, made those kids erupt. And they, I remember that. Did. And they did. And they would let you know it. They He's did. Going. I played it again later on that night because Aaron asked for it. Larry was appalled by it. <laughs> He's like, what is this shit? <laughs> but Bob Gabbiano came running up to the booth. What is this? And and it began. The, the next week, we not the next week. The two weeks later, Pablo was doing his first show at Studio Fifty Four with two dancers. And him, you know, I don't know if you remember how big Paul was. Pablo was. He was a big boy, and he could move for a big boy. He used to go to the garage and dance. All right, for a big boy, he could do his garage dances. So, um, he's no longer with us. Rest in peace, Paul Trinidad. Oh, he did die. He did pass away. I, I didn't yeah. know from uh, diabetes. Yeah, <laughs> like everybody we know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but uh, that that album, that 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 Tough City Avenue opened up a lot of bridges for me and airwaves for me to get across to the UK because the Corporation of One became a number one record at the real life became a number one record in the UK during that whole rave scene and the Hacienda and everything. I went over to the UK, played the Hacienda, played raves, raves that Vito Bruno put put together, that English promoters put together. I was from 88 to 92. I was in and out of the UK at least six, seven times. And Steve Budd, I, I got a, I got a manager over there that got me mixes over there. I, I, I would say that for my mixing, doing my remixes and production, I would say I'd made more money from the UK than the US because of that. Isn't that, funny? Isn't that funny? And till this day, till this day, my and last remix want- I did was Culture Club, which I just did last year. Meanwhile, those records, like the Pablo Toto record, which probably went gold 10 times over, just in New York. And I made it on an A-track. On an A-track. I forgot to mention, everybody made it on a little cassette A-track. Right. <laughs> but here's the thing. No big studio right in this house. What drum, you know, here's a question for you. You said you, said you knocked out the drums. Do you remember what drum machine you used for that thing? I- an Akai 1200. SP12? Yeah. Okay, use SP1200. Okay. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it had that raw sound. That, gah, 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 I mean, it had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 8-bit sound. Wow, 12-bit drum sound. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was, uh, it, it was even, it's even more 
elating and gratifying to know that your record did well by by using such shit equipment. You know, it really it's, it's, it's an accomplishment. You know what I mean? So I'm very proud of that record. Look, my I can make records doing <laughs> shit, my this look. Is real house. This is real house music. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you around the right people, you know, you you had the right right people and the right situation to exploit that. You know, let's not forget you were right in what we call in the in the city, in New York City, in the melting pot to be able to break a record. Somebody if you if you believe this somebody's record and you played it just on that night alone between Hot 103 or whatever and that crowd was a massive hit already within a week. And then but the thing is, also, I was I was known here in the states, and and especially in New York. But then when I went to Europe for the first time, I remember going to Polydor because they wanted to do. Polydor wanted to sign the Tough City records that that I produced, and I had a meeting, and um, the, the guy's name was Chris Perry. So Chris Perry came out, and there was two black gentlemen hanging out with me. Um, not hanging out with me, but they were waiting for a meeting also. So Chris came out and said, he looked at one of one of them and said, Freddie, you can come in. And I said, I looked at him and I said, is your name Freddie too? He goes, no, I'm not Freddie. I said, I said, Chris, I'm Freddie. So he thought that one of the black guys was the corporation of one. Because the name of the album, the Corporation One album, was Black Like Me, often one of my favorite books. I named it Black Like meanwhile, Me. Meanwhile, let me show everybody what you looked at around that time. Hang on, everybody. Take a good look. This is what Freddie kind of looked like back in the day. That was after the Corporation of One. That was just Bastille. But I'm saying, I'm saying that's yeah. how he looked. So just take that into consideration. They're looking for the dark-skinned dude was Spanish dude or black dude, and here comes this guy from America. <laughs> That's exactly what I look like. And uh, well, you know, that picture always reminded me when Jelly Bean did the same thing with the Elise Fiorello. He had the long hair. It was around that same time. Everybody had all the guys were all tracking the long Steve, hair. Steve dudes. Thompson had the long hair also. Steve to Steve as well. A lot of the guys had long hair. It was it was the look at the time. It was the eighties. Right, right. Late eighties. Late 80s, yeah. Thank God it wasn't a mullet. Thank God it wasn't a mullet. I've never done a mullet. Never did. Can't get I any should, pictures of I me with a mullet. Freddie, to be honest with you, I could never have grown my hair that long. How, what's like? What's that involved, growing your hair like that? What do you mean? I, you just don't cut it. You get it trimmed every once in a while. The style. I didn't. It, 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 I, I mean, if you look at that picture, there was style to it. It wasn't just a. No, I know that. So I'm saying, what's what's involved? I mean, you know, you're not getting hair extensions. It just takes you got to go each time. You, you want it to hair grow. Extensions? No, no. I I did that once in Barbados. That was it. <laughs> they put the beads on me. That was a yeah, very. So basically, you had that Bo Derek look. Yes, and you know what? I did that. That that Barbados trip, me and Bruce Carbone wanted to go to like a place where it was like a like a good place for for singles. You know what I mean? So we wind up going there, and we get into this hotel, and the first thing we see is just a bunch of couples, 
And we're like, well, where's the rest of uh, the women? Where's the women at? And we also, we, we start going around the pool. And who's in the pool but the first man to give me my first job in the music business, John Luongo. John Luongo is in the John pool. John Luongo's in the, in the pool? In the pool. He's the first. And that, that's the man that started me really in the business with, I, he, when it came to Dance Interior, he came to Dance Interior one night. He heard me play. He asked me to come to his office and asked me to promote the records that he was producing and putting out. And, um, and I said, of course I will. You know, he was, he was a legend. He was one of the first remixers that ever lived, you know, um, from Boston. And, and uh, you know, he did some great stuff, Jack. You know, you know uh, John Waite was, you know, one of his records that he did, Blamage. He produced Blamage. I was in the studio with him when he was producing it. I would watch him come home from the studio 24 hours, being in the studio. That's when he used to go to the studio and do lockouts for 24 hours because they would get good deals for them back then. And so I would watch him splice the tape together. The guy, the guy never rested. He was, he was a workaholic. I, I really thought I learned a lot about work ethic from John Luongo. That was my first job ever in the business. Now, was that a pavilion? Was it when he had pavilion uh, records? Exactly. Exactly. Pavilion records. So was pavilion and, at the Sony building or was it a separate or whatever? Uh, it was at the, do you know where the Sheffield is in New York City? It's on 57th Street? Yes. That's where it was. At and, the he okay. lived there. He lived there, and he had an office next door. So I would. I was his promoter for the Rock Pool people. If you remember that Rock Pool was was run by Mark Josephson. Hold on a second. Hold on, everybody. This is where we hear D O R dance orientated rock music. This is what he's talking about, everybody. Right here. Right there. That's and he he asked me because Dance Interior was known for its alternative stuff to promote to the DJs that I, cause the other person that was working there, Ray Alessi was a DJ in Brooklyn, but he was just completely disco and would not touch alternative stuff. So John needed somebody cause he was, he was starting to produce Falco, um, Blamage, um, John Waite, like I said, and many other stuff, many other things that, that, that people like don't know John for. He was he was doing a lot of alternative things, you know. So right then and there, I said, You got it. I, I got you. As long as I could come in the studio and watch, that would be that's what I was gonna ask you. That that's better than being paid for me. You know what I mean? Even though I got paid, um, that that would the that that took it over the wall for me to be in the studio. So, Freddie, give us the picture then. Was Steve Thompson working near the room? Was it like that? Was that all going on? Because I remember they were all working at a Sigma and, and media, a lot of places. John was always worked at Sigma, and it was a it was a great studio. It was like a very high price studio. Me, on the other hand, I when I started my my remixing, I did it at Unique and Shakedown. And because I was comfortable with the people there, you know, it was more about who was there, who was hanging out there, 
you know, at Shakedown, there was, it was always a creative force there. It was Latin Rascals were always there. They were my friends. Arthur, John Roby, like I said. Um, and John, John, Shep, Shep was always there. Junior was there. And at the time, Junior really wasn't doing mixes. He was doing edits for Arthur, you know. And then he got into his remixing. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, Unique was another place that I felt comfortable at because of the, uh, the, there was a lot of editors there that I worked with. Gail, Gail Sky King, too, worked out there, right? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And we all did the same studios, the main studios, and then there was the edit room where Berrios, I worked with Carlos Berrios on edits there, um, Shep Nunez, and then Tudo Aquino started his own place called Prime Cuts, which was just for edits, just for edits. And then every all the editors worked out of that place. People, that's some real New York history right there. And with, amongst all that right there was all that powerhouse of... Uh, of talent working in one spot. So could you imagine what the people were talking about amongst sessions? You know, who's mixing Noel? Who's oh, doing oh. this? Who's doing that? It's crazy. Every, everybody was going into each other. Arthur was always coming into the studio. What are you doing? I was doing Judas Priest. You're doing Judas Priest? How the hell did you get that mix? Gail Bruce was, she knew who to call. I was, a, I, I would love, to, I, when I got that Judas Priest mix, I was like in heaven. I'm mixing Judas Priest as a dance mix. You know what I mean? Turbo Lover. And I, I got a gold record, for, a silver gold record. It was a platinum record for that. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just like Tony would come in. And if I didn't think I, I had the, the edit just quite right, I would say, Tony, do you think I, I was, I was exhausted. You think you could do something with this record? And he would listen to it. If he, if Tony would be totally honest, and and Albert would, they would be really honest. No, we couldn't do the, the tur Turbo Lover. They didn't touch. They didn't feel it. You know what I mean? Because it was it was it That's was the like thing is you got to understand that music. If you don't get it, it's hard to work on it. What you got to appreciate from Tony and Albert for being honest. They weren't just doing it for the money. They were they were real artists. They were artists. You know they were. They were they weren't just editors. They would they would bring a lot to the table to to a mix, you know, um, and 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 then I would I would just out of nowhere if I was in the neighborhood of Shakedown, I would go up and visit Arthur and see what he was up to, and then say, hey, I got a mix coming. Can I book it here? You know, and Arthur was always accommodating. You know, whatever you know, work around. He would he would take out he would leave his session to make sure that I could come in. And do my mix. You know, I did Rod Stewart there. Um, uh, Voices and Fashion, I did there. You know, and, and, and Shep did the edits for that one. Shep Nunes, who no longer is with us. He was one of the best editors of the day. Yes, he was. Yes. Omar Santana. I always think of Omar Santana. And even back then, Benji Candelario was just starting to edit stuff. That's right. Benji Benji was coming up. So there was a lot of good talent out of that community right there. Right in that one spot. It was like Victor Simonelli started working for you know, after you do a 24-hour session, a mix session, you, you you do one day of recording, then you do the next day without breaks. And my manager at the time was Brad LeBeau. And Brad LeBeau was a great manager. 
And he always had me working. And it got to the point where I was DJing and, and being in the studio so much that the, the, the latter days of our relationship got a little weathered because I would wake up and be like, where am I today? And not really doing my homework on the mixes that I should have been because I was out hanging out too much. And, and instead of doing my homework on the mix that I should have been doing, you know, and relying on old, relying on my old tricks instead of doing my homework that I was doing in the beginning, you know? So, so but there's a reason for all that because you thought you were missing something outside hanging out. That's what happened to all of us. We had to yeah, go hang yeah. out too. Yes. And, you know, and, and, but hanging out with me turned into hanging out at the club and going to another club and then don't, don't, then going to an after hours. And then I had to be in the studio at 12. So I wouldn't get to the studio at 12. I get there at two. And so two hours be wasted. That means that we have to rush a little bit. And I just, I remember a record um, on Electra, not Electra, on uh, Epic called Basics or Tears of a Clown. We did the old Smokey record. Um, and I remember that mix not coming out right. And I, I said to myself, I got to, I got to stop with the whole after hours cocaine thing and get back to what I was doing. But it was hard to do that because Freddie, wherever Freddie went, there was a party. And wherever Freddie went, the party went. So it was like I had, I had people like, like, where are you going tonight, Freddie? And it was like my answer machine. And it was like, it was like, it was calling me. It was calling me. And I was, I was, I was like, I was, I was addicted to the nightlife, addicted to the, 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 the crowd that, the, that wanted me around. And Pablo was also part of that whole thing. And he was a big, you know, party guy. So it was like wherever Freddie went, it was, you know, whether, whether the after hours was baseline or the after hours was Hollywood, where I used to DJ. Um, it, it, it got in the way of work. I have to say it definitely got in the way of work. And that pulled the, that pulled my relationship with Brad apart because he also was going out, you know, experiencing what, and so, so his management was, was being shaken by it. So the whole thing came to a crumbling, you know, debacle, so to speak. So in the background, I could hear if this was a movie, I could hear uh, uh, what's the name singing who who sang "Feel the Spin," rush, rush to the yayo, <laughs> rush, rush to the yayo. Song to that. If if this was a a VH1 or MTV show, it would be like one of those rock bands that fizzled out because of the cocaine and all that. It was exactly. Like that. I didn't want to turn this into a cliche. No, but you had to. No, but you got to tell us a reason because this is what brings out the best and the worst in everybody. There is something to be said about this business. I remember Judy Weinstein and I would always say the same thing. This is a hard, tough business on everybody. And a lot of great talent fails because of the nightlife part of it. Right. Nonstop partying. So I'm glad you're bringing this out. I mean, the DJing never suffered. The DJing never suffered from it. 
Um, but there's business now, now because you're not just a DJ anymore. Right. Now you're pretty best known, the producer, the remixer, and our guy. All these extra components right. that are just not functioning like a banker. You're functioning right. like a clubber. But there was places like the Hacienda with Michael Pickering that loved that stuff, that loved that part of me. You know, Freddie's a partier. He's great here. He'd be great for this place. You know what I mean? Or when I worked at Heaven in London, everybody in London loved me to be the party guy. Nikki Holloway sent a hello, by the way. I saw him say, Nikki Holloway, tell him he's, I saw him first. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. They all love that. If you, if you show that side, they being how we, how, Let's put it like this. It's complimentary to the nightlife. The drugs, the alcohol is all there because everybody wants to make you feel comfortable. It's so easy to keep partying. Right, right. Good or bad, you know? And listen, if if you're doing 48 hours of studio and then you got to go and DJ at the Palladium, uh, you're going to be calling your guy at 12 o'clock because you're like... I got to make it to five o'clock in the morning and I need a little juice. And that's what was going through my brain, you know, until that. And when that guy showed up, that party took off again because it was a little low from 12 to one. And then all of a sudden that guy came by. Boom. Here we go again. We're rocking till five. And the palladium to me was a big toy. It was lights. It had video it was like me getting into a spaceship and having all the toys at my disposal i had a light guy that i would say hey we're gonna play pink floyd welcome to the machine next and he'd look at me like i was crazy but he was really into it he would be really into it and and i'm like all right ready bang boom i put on I, i was the first one in new york to have the 1200 cd player I took back from Japan with me and I was using it as a stuttering. I would just play with it and, and not really read the instructions, but really play with it because that, that in Japan, they gave it to me at, at the Genesis club that Yuki Wananabe, the, the owner of Mars set me up with this tour. And I did this place that just opened up the grand opening to Genesis club in Osaka. And the, the place went nuts. I'll never forget playing there. But I was I, I remember pre-them pre opening me, me, me working it, because the only CD player I used before that was a little handheld portable one that I would put on foam so it wouldn't vibrate. And But this thing was like a monster. It was the same size as a turntable, if you remember them. Of course, uh, it's dark gray. Had yeah. the buttons. I remember it clear as yeah. day. You just said speed, speed, control, speed control and everything. Um, and I, I just played with it for about three hours before the club opened, and that's all I really knew. I never read the instructions. The guys from Sony that were there from Techniques, they they couldn't speak English, so they couldn't tell me anything really. And they they really, as far as I could, I was concerned, they weren't showing me anything. They were just like, do do go play, you know and that's what I did. I just was tricking it and and playing with it. And and uh, at the Palladium, using the reel-to-reel as an echo, as a delay, 
um, and and then playing people's stuff that came by with it or test pressings. Mostly at that time, by by the Palladium, people weren't bringing me reels anymore. They were bringing me test pressings and or cassettes or. I, I would much rather have a reel, but I, I, I like my reel to be there for my, my, my delays. And, but like I was getting back into it, I would play Pink Floyd, the, the lights would come down, play Jaws, the lights would come down, they'd bring the lights, the smoke, the crowd would go going crazy, play The Godfather in the middle of the night, then break into whatever, whatever, you know, at that point of the night would, 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 would strike me as going with the crowd because like i said i i play with the crowd they give me i give them back that's how i play and um that that club you know steve like i said that they i i was blessed by owners never asking me to play anything steve Bell did ask me to play things not things only one thing he would just come up to me by four o'clock in the morning when he was a little tipsy and then he would just say just play Diana. And that would be it. I'd play Diana Ross and he'd be a happy man. And the rest and that the rest of the booth would be happy. As long as Steve's happy, we would all be happy because he because he'll always be there. Um and uh I have a story about Steve that you know he went he he had he I was going to the bathroom one night. And his office was right across from the men's bathroom. And he told me to come in. And he had some bumps there. And I did some bumps. And he and I said, you know, my uncle, I, I said to him out of nowhere, I just, because that's what it does to you. It just makes you talk, doesn't it? So I said to him, you know, my uncle was in jail with you, Steve. And he go, he looked at me like, crazy like why would you bring this up and he goes what's your uncle's name i said joey bastone and he looked at me like he was gonna cry he just grabbed me and held me like this and he goes joey i I know joey i don't even know where the conversation went but i just remember that that moment was like so embedded in my mind that that night and so many things you forget from the palladium from danceteria but that moment was just like something that you know because he did some time for tax evasion and things like that oh uh, joey your uncle too did some things for he went to fed he went to club fed yeah club fed that's it it's really not which is really not really a club but you know it wasn't it's, as- not, it's much better than the other it's not like Rikers, basically. It's yeah. not like going, oh, like going to Attica. Well, Attica. Listen, listen, Rikers right now, I don't know if the rest of the world knows this, but Rikers is in really bad shape. Rikers Island is a, a jail in New York City that uh, people shouldn't even, human beings shouldn't even be on. You know, it's really bad. But, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that story is embedded in my mind. But the Palladium was like i said a big toy in my hands that i controlled it was a huge place that used to i used to go as a young man as a young boy go see concerts in i I saw judas priest there i saw pat benatar there i saw many rock and roll bands there i i was it was like a weekly thing going to the palladium to see bands 
Um, and uh, it turned into this great place. Great. I, and I, and I, I believe I have the longest tenure as a DJ there. I played there from the third week it was open to, I believe, 92, 93. So it was a pretty long tenure. I played Friday nights, Saturday nights. I believe maybe Saturday nights. Saturday nights. Yeah, and I think after you, it was Charlie Casanova took over, right? If I remember. I'm not sure. I know, I know um, Mojo played some. Um, I know Junior did his nights there. That's um, later. That's later. That's arena. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. About, right yeah. around when you left. Yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, there was a great manager there. His name is David Miskit. Just want to mention his name. He he always made sure that I was on time and doing my job. On <laughs> time that you were on time. <laughs> I, was never, I was never really late at the Palladium because that was it was more corporate there. It was very corporate. It wasn't like Danceteria. I learned that very quickly. Because as soon as you walk in, it was a an office and they paid you by check. And I never got paid by check by anybody until the Palladium. I was really pissed at that. <laughs> we need your SSN number. Why? Exactly. What the hell you need my SSN number? You're gonna get paid by check. <laughs> what? That was the same like Gation's clubs. You work for Peter Gation, you're on payroll if you worked in, in the I've tunnel. I never house. ever worked for Peter Gation. Uh, again, the palladium was Rudolph. Wasn't for Rudolph. If it wasn't for Rudolph and Larry, Larry championed me in. Because Larry played Thursday nights. And let me tell you, when Larry played Thursday night there, I got to tell you, that was some of the best Larry's nights. You could talk about the garage. You could talk about the garage. So you blew in the face. But Larry, that wasn't his crowd. But he worked that crowd. He really did. He, and and I, I didn't think he could pull it off. And he did. Yeah, it was different for him. That wasn't no normal yeah. garage crowd. No. Well, well you know, what, you, I'm glad you put that up now because I know you were really good friends with him. We're very um, good friends, yeah. Yeah, and I also remember hearing there was a time when you had looked after Larry when, you know, when a king falls from grace, basically. Well, yeah. I wouldn't call it looking after him. I wish I could have done more. Um, but uh, we weren't uh, in the beginning when the garage was open. I was didn't even know Larry. Um, I got to know Larry through the John Luongo thing by promoting records. That's how I got into the garage by promoting records. And there was a bouncer there named Junior who I was friends with that would let me come up to the booth. Hello, Junior, if you're out there. And, um, and, and that's how I got into the booth. I, and I, I brought my first, I bought my first record, pink, pink, uh, uh, pink rhythms by John Roca. Can't get enough of my love, uh, which was on Metropolis Records, which was distributed through Emergency, which Curtis Abina and and Sergio Cosa put me through. That was my second job. That was my third job. My my second job was A and R for Profile, and then I went to Emergency to do A and R. So this is going back now. I would say so. My my relationship with Larry started right around. 86, 87. And, uh, and then we bought the blaze record to him, of course. And he loved that. That became a, 
a garage classic. And after that Blaze record, he knew I had something. Um, and they we we went out to dinner a couple of times. But he was all he was his health was in great shape. He was he was doing great then. But as his health deteriorated, um, and he lost his records, um, which I can relate to now, and and um he he is a lot of people turn that back on him, all as I could say. Uh, maybe they didn't turn it back on him, but maybe they didn't pay attention to him as much. Um, and I basically said he didn't really have a place to stay. He was staying at Bob's sometimes. And I, and I lived two blocks away from Bob's on 50, I was on 51st and 7th and Bob was on 8th Avenue. Um, and basically I said, listen, you could stay here. Um, I just can't have the, the needles because I grew up with that watching um, somebody close to me, you know, have a problem with it. And I just, the needle thing scared me. Um, and he stayed, uh, stayed for uh, in and out three months. This was like the last year of his life. And, um, then one day I went to the bathroom and he was, uh, unfortunately there and had a needle and i i said i can't have this because it was it brought up too many and it's bringing up feelings now and i can't have this and i and to this day i wish i never did ask him to leave but i i I had to you know i'm gonna share this with freddie larry had a very big constitution and he knows this because you know we deal with larry i was with David Lozada on St. Mark's Place. And Larry said to me, bitch, give me five dollars. And and <laughs> I'll never forget. And David was like, don't give him no don't give that bitch no money like that. And I'm like, I'm gonna give it to him. He says, bitch, if you don't give me this five dollars, I'm gonna go get it from somebody else. And you know I'm gonna do it. So give it to me. That's right. how he was. Right. And right. I tell people all the time, you know, right. Right. you weren't gonna stop him. You or no one was gonna stop him doing what he was doing. Listen, this is a story between me and you, but now it's out in the world. We're in my place on 16th Street, my first apartment. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon from all night hanging out. Went to his, uh, this is after he played the Thursday, and I have to play Friday night. I had to play that night at the Palladium. And we're all, Pablo's there. My friend Edwin's there, Mike's there, all my buddies, all my whole little crew. And and uh, Larry's in my kitchen where we could see him. And we're doing the thing. And Larry comes back with, like he did a science project in my kitchen. I swear to God, he came back with a big bottle of Pepsi, empty, straw sticking out. He says, we're doing this for real now. Stop with the bullshit. (laughs) We did that. I got up. I had the long hair. I got up, out of my mind, went to a bob, went to a hairstylist, said, cut it all off. Larry loved my hair. Loved my hair. He said, I walked back in to the house an hour later. They were still there. 
Oh, wide-eyed? Exactly. Wide-eyed, walked in. He was like, everybody's mouth went, dropped. And What'd, you do, What'd you do, Freddie? What'd you do? I just, everybody's head that was, especially Larry, everybody that was high, were no longer high. They were no longer high that night. So enough, that's my last drug story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so when did we clean up, Freddie? Come on now, because I know you must have had that moment with Jesus. Where uh, you thought, no, I never had a moment with Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you go, I had enough of this. I can't do this anymore. Something uh, just is a breaking point. Unfortunately, it happened way later in the music business. Um, the the Because the music business, like you said, is tough to be in. It's always around you. Um, there's stronger people like Brad LeBeau, who's a very strong man in my eyes, who was really clean and sober for years. Um, I can't say that, you know. I I I I went to a football game uh, a couple of weeks ago and had beers, you know. So I'm not Mr. Clean's up, but but there's no other things going on in my life like that. There, it's not even in the culture anymore. You know what I mean? And I'm glad. It's not like, you know, I went to, a, I went to an opening the other night, a, a, a premiere. And, and I still, once I get into a club, after, I still get itches. Like, is there, is there a line at the bathroom? Because if there's a line at the bathroom, that means there's something going on. <laughs> so, so there wasn't a line at the bathroom, so it was happening. Um, Those are the memories of the of the true clubbing scene. That's it, and the smell of ether in the there, air. There was a place called Save the Robots, and you would go in there. You get as soon as you go in there, you get on the line at the bathroom, and and go to the bathroom. There's a line. Once you got out of the bathroom, you go to the bar and get the shittiest vodka that they sold, shittiest vodka they, that you buy, and then you go to the back of the line to get back into the bathroom. That's what Save the Robots was. I mean, Roman was a great DJ that DJed there, DJ Roman, but, and I think E-Man played there too. Um, but I, I didn't go there to dance. I went there to do that. And, every, and it seemed like 50, uh, 500 other people did the same thing. But, um, but getting back to the music, um, I had a I had a, a a period with Curtis Urbina, who's very spiritual, you know. And I would I would come in two o'clock in the afternoon, you know. He they knew they hired me and they knew what they were getting. They they wanted they didn't want me to be out all night long, but I would come in and be, you know, where Curtis would be like. So where were you last night? <laughs> <laughs> and and I would go into Curtis's room and see, I wanted to play him a record, and he'd be he'd be doing yoga, you know, and I'd be like Curtis, I got to play something not now, <laughs> but I really got to play not not now. So I close the door, but with me, it'd be like he'd open my door right away. Play this. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? You know, with me, it was, I, I, I haven't had any sleep, <laughs> but he would let me go there and sleep. And and be be there for work. He get, gave me the key to the place. So if I got out of an after hours, which is right in the neighborhood, I used to DJ at Hollywood, this place that Johan owned, 
um, another great owner. And he, uh, it was right around the block. So he let me go right into emergency. I'd sleep in my office and people come in. I was ready, ready for action as soon as the people come in. And we did some great things at emergency, made some really great records. Um, uh, like at profile, I signed first signing I ever did was Paul Hardcastle. I brought Paul Hardcastle rainforest and 19 into the mix there. Um, that was from going to see Manny and him playing me a record. And it's like, give me that record. You know, that was most of my A&R and A&R to me, wasn't going to see bands. A&R was getting records. Right, you walk into a record shop, hear something, grab. I gotta grab this record. And you go bringing, and you do- bringing imports in. That's that's and and it went from went from profile, went from to emergency, went to from emergency, went to epic. Where epic, I wasn't in house. I said I I told I told them that I could not do in house because I was I was DJing every night. It was literally DJing every night or in the studio. So I, they gave me a contract where they would pay me quarterly to bring in stuff. So I uh, brought in their first house record, Full House, um, Communicate. And then Michael Kaplan and I uh, did um, did uh, the group Will to Power. And, Succeed, and, right? Was his record Succeed, Will to Power? Uh, yeah, it was Succeed. And then they did the uh, Frampton cover. Uh, Baby, I love your way, and um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the 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 good. I'm trying to remember the head of the label's name right now. It'll come to me, but uh, that was my A and R uh, lineage right there that I uh, that I did. But I so I I, I brought in a lot of. Uh, a lot of things to them that were maybe a little too house, but but the, the communicate really hit. That was their first thing, but it didn't hit really the way we wanted it to hit. It didn't hit nationally like Colonel Abrams hit. You know that's what we were really going for. Colonel Abrams really was like the the peak of what house music was doing at pop. Pop house. Oh, so you're talking about when MC had the speculation and all those records right. when he trapped when trap came out when right. the, when the records crossed from music is the answer, which was on Streetwise Arthur's right. label right. to Trapped. Trapped, right, right. Music is the answer. Still one of my favorite records. Yo, that dub. I I still rock that dub to this I, day. I, I played the dub two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And I got to also hear. Release the tension. <laughs> you gotta release, gotta release, gotta release. That's a New York Garage all-time record. Like there's certain staples that whenever you are hearing them, you just know what year it was. You remember yeah, yeah. like that. I, I mean, th- there's so many clubs that I played at in New York that I brought all. Like I said, I bring six crates of records with me, so. All these records kind of mishmash into like I played the Red Parrot. I played um, uh, the other name that they gave Red Parrot, which was um, I made a actually I made a, a list. Uh, the Sapphire Club, which was a great club, which was a small club in the East, East Village, was a great club that I played at. Um, I don't know if you ever was there, Mister yeah, Fuji. 
Actually, you played there. I like. I like. The, the sound system wasn't one of the best, but Ells, Ellsworth Street, Ellsworth, Eldridge. Yeah, Eldridge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the yeah. east side. Yeah, right. And uh, 4D. I did a lot of radio shows from 4D. Um, that's right. You and Scott Blackwell. Scott Blackwell. That's right. And um, and I played at La Barbat, but I wouldn't say that I was a resident at La Barbat because I played there maybe six, seven times. And like I said to you before, if I play someplace that many times, I don't consider myself a resident. I I have to be playing three months, four months to, to say that I, I, I played there as a resident. You know what I mean? Some people say they played at a club one place, one time, and they're like, yeah, I played there. I'm like, really? Why did you play? Well, you know, wait, wait, Freddie, wait, wait, hang on, baby. The problem is, back in the day, there was no Google. There was none of that. So, and now most of the people we remember are no longer with us that remember anything. There's a few of us that remember, but most people don't remember. So people can bullshit their way through this, right? So now it's more like just write your resume and put every freaking club name that's in New York on there. You know, I was so excited about doing this interview because of one thing with a lot of things but one major thing was wikipedia had just like three sentences on me and i was really pissed off about it and then i checked it today and they got like a full thing about me so i'm i apologize to wikipedia they got their shit together but i don't know who wrote the first review about me but he doesn't know me at all so i'm glad we're getting this all out in the open today no thank you for having me well, it wasn't easy because I had to make sure you weren't stuck in the Hollywood moment because I was worried if you were going to be, you know, <laughs> I want to tell everybody something. Don't forget, our man here is on silver screen. He oh. leaves the DJing world for a minute and not really leaves it, but he takes another right turn to another career. And this is what I'm waiting to hear where this transition happens because I don't know. See, there is no Wikipedia that says Freddie Bastone left the turntables behind and the headphone hung and then he went to go work Wikipedia. So let's see how that happened. Freddie, you know, we got the whole part. Where did the Hollywood thing, or should I say Broadway musical thing happen? Well, no, I, I never did a musical ever in my life. I probably never will with this voice. Uh, but um, I... I had, I had a great friend named Michael Santoro, who's a great actor, and he was a bouncer at Danceteria and the Palladium. And one night, I don't know if it was after the Palladium or, it was, yeah, it was after the Palladium because that was a year. It was like 90, 92. Um, he said, I, and I was doing my Pacino and doing my things and making people laugh after the club was closed and we were all around the bar. And um, basically, he said, you know, you should really go to this acting class that I'm in, Marsha Hoffrick. She's a great coach. So I went. I remember my first time getting in front of people. I, I didn't even turn around. I was scared shit. Uh, but as I did this thing called method, I really internalized a lot of the stuff from my past. And that's what method is. You make you, you make the character yours. And and then you speak the lines. Um, and I, a lot of stuff was coming out of me. And the coach really noticed a lot, a lot of, I guess she noticed something in me that I had. And I noticed that she noticed. 
So I stuck with it. She put me in a bunch of off-off-Broadway uh, plays. Hurley Burley, I did the lead. Uh, Those Are River Keeps, I did the lead. And these are two-hour plays. Um, so, And they're deep plays. They're very, I mean, they're comical, but they're dark comedy. Um, and uh, from there, I got a good agent. Uh, did all the Law and Orders. Did the Sopranos. Uh, my first one my, was uh, New York Undercover was my first TV thing. And I robbed a priest on that one. How many episodes of Sopranos did you do? Two. 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 Yeah, the first season. That, that My name was Batman because I beat somebody up with a bat and threw somebody off a bridge. So that was... Uh, and with this voice, I don't think I'll ever get to be a, a good guy because I've done two cop roles and independents. And uh, they're both bad cops on the take, dealing drugs. I, and I, I think it's, and I sorely believe it's this voice that I have this Rod Stewart thing going on. I can't sing like him, but I speak with a, this. Well, you get that raspy sound. It's yeah. a rasp. It's, it's dark. It's a dark type, like a sinister. Oh, so I can never be a good lawyer. I'm not going to be. I, Maybe I could be... Uh, yes, you can. You do the Al Pacino. Hold yeah, on. You're yeah, right yeah. order. Yes. I was going to say, like, Angels in America, he played that lawyer. That was that was incredible. So, yes, maybe there is there is room for that. Thank you. Thank you for giving me hope. How often are you working up until, of course, COVID? I mean, how much, how much stuff are you working on in, in this side of the business now? COVID was a kind... I'm going to say... Was, was horrendous to me because I lost my mother, but it was a blessing to me because I started writing a script because like music for me, I got into music. I love music. How am I going to get into music? How can I, how can I get people to know me? I got to make my own music because people aren't hiring me enough. So that's what I did with music. So that's what I'm doing with this script right now. I'm, I'm not getting the, the, the attention that I believe I should be getting as an actor. So I'm writing my own script to put out there. And I got people interested working on the ending to make it bang, to make it really bang. Because the 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 the, the script is banging up until the ending. The ending is not bright yet. And it's not going to be I'm not gonna shop it. Although I do have people with money, I'm not going to shop it until it's the, the ending is right. I'm not going to spoil the ending. Although I, I've seen plenty of movies where the ending is just like, what? Like I just saw The Saints of Newark. And that was... Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more. I mean, the ending was just... Uh, the ending has to be, to me, has to be one of has to be as strong as the middle of the pot. So that's what I'm working out on right now. Yeah, but that's what I tell people is like when you're making a record, it's gotta be right from beginning to end. If it's not right, forget it. Right, right. I mean the ending the ending, especially today's songs that aren't the, the songs that we used to make, we used to, we used to we used to thrive to make seven and eight minute records. I go to I go to B part and there's records that are 12 inches are 425 and five minutes long. If that, 
If they're five minutes, that's a long mix now. So I'm like, I bug out. Do you know why that is? Is it because of laziness? I don't know. No, I'll explain why. Simply because it's the generation gap of what happened with the internet and the flashing constantly of the changes that were going on. So people's attention attention spans are shorter now, which have now pushed us inclusive of, say, Spotify. They were the first. They said, we don't want those long mixes. We want a two and a half minute version so that not even radio, two and a half minute edit of, of the record because... People are not going to sit there and listen five, six, seven, ten minutes, twelve minutes to a record. They just—they're the ones that changed it. So everybody's following the suit. But I know what you mean. It's like what happened to the long twelve-inch. I, mean, I find myself when, I, when I'm working on tractor, I'll extend the break with 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 with, with tractor. I'll I'll do an eight eight bar break and I'll loop it so I could get my mix in on the break because these breaks are like four four bars long and they're back into vocals you know what i mean so thank god for tractor for that also is it let me ask you this is it easier for you to produce records now or was it better back then for you oh I, i'll say now because i'm at work <laughs> but <laughs> but to be totally honest it was more fun making records back then having an engineer like Bruce Miller, who was like, like we would come to the studio and I would be like, this is what Queen did on this record from 1976. Do you hear this going back and forth in the background or the Pink Floyd where this dog bark on animals is going from, from the first minute to the eighth minute of the song, but it's in the background and it comes around. I want to do that. We're going to do that today. This is what we're going to do. And it was like I had an engineer that was, yeah, we're going to do that. And he was dialing up numbers and just playing with things. And, and we're playing with numbers, not really knowing what we're dealing with. We're, we're juggling with, you know, not knowing. I went to audio school research and they, and they basically taught me math. And nobody in the studio does math. Okay. We don't do it. We play with fiddle. We so wait, 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 wait. So it's like when you had to learn algebra, calculus, and geometry and all that. I bullshit. didn't do that. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase it again. So <laughs> let's ask this to people on the street. Do you use algebra for your accounting every day? No. So you're saying to me, you did, you bought the record. Listen, Bruce, I want this. <laughs> exactly. And then we would fiddle with knobs and see if it come out. Yes, that's it. That's we're getting it. We're getting somewhere. But we would spend, I mean, just spending time on the drum sound, getting the drums right was like a five hour thing, you know? Doing a record today is five hours. Doing the whole fucking record today is five hours. You know? I don't spend five hours on drums anymore. I get them from a thing and drop it in it's not you know i don't go into a room and hit a and bang my feet because i want my feet to go throughout the song and we had when we were in london i brought my own engine i brought bruce over and we had bottles in the studio and we were going ring to the bottles and ring to just and it just just the creativity is not what it used to be it's it, it, it can't be 
technology has made it too simple. And, and that, to, to me, is a downer. It just doesn't make, I, I'd rather be in the studio 24 hours than five hours, to be totally honest with you. Because to me, you can make a perfect record that way. Well, now it's made to the point where you can leave the record where it was and come back in 10 years and it's right where and it'll sound exactly the same way because it's digital now. The old days, if you didn't finish the record that day and you tried to recall it again, it never sounded the same. It just right. never. No, but actually sometimes the recall was good. A recall was a good thing because you come in with fresh ears. Fresh ears is a good thing. Don't underestimate the importance of fresh ears because there's plenty of times I did those 24-hour lockouts that I went home and I was like, oh, no, I got to do a recall. I don't care if this is going to cost me money, but I'm I'm going to take a cut on this. Yeah, because it did, the mix wasn't sitting right. Or something. No, it was sitting right after 24 hours and your, your, your ears are dead and needing more high-end after you, you, I'm like pressing the high end button on upper on the upper board, and my engineer is slapping my hand, and I'm like, no, it does. It needs more high end. <laughs> and then the recall is called, and he looks at you and says, "I told you that. I told you. I told you." And then you were like droopy dog. But then we have the, then you have the records like uh, Pablo Toto that you didn't you know, five hours or two hours, and you did records with Blaze that we were in a 16-track room, all five of us, piled into a room this big, working the board. You're ready to run and press, press on that thing, press! You know what I mean? Doing those live mixes when you didn't have automation. There was no automation on that Blaze record, you know? Was was that a D&D? You mixed that? Do you remember? I, you know what? It was it was a very small studio. It wasn't blank tapes. It was like down the block from blank tapes. It was a really Curtis didn't give us a big budget for that. <laughs> working on air, basically working on an air, but we call that the air budget. <laughs> but the, the song was great, and just like another record I did for them, Carolyn Harding. That, that record, we, we did at Blank Tapes. Move It On, right? No, I did Memories. Memories. I did Memories. I never did Move It On. Um, the other emergency record was Raw, Don't You Try It. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Larry used to kill that record. Yeah. That's when Larry was like, who's this Freddie Bastone guy? That's when Freddie Bastone's name was starting to become like, yo, what's that record? Who the hell's Freddie Bastone? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, those are, you know, it's funny that the the bigger budget records, to me, the smaller budget records did more for my like, my career than the bigger budget records. Well, because those are the DJ records. Those are revered by the DJs. Those are the yeah. ones that rock. Like I, and I hear, if you should need a friend, I think of you too. It's like, right. those records make me go Freddie Bastone, like right. right away. Kevin Hedge. I think of the people involved. Right, 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 right. It's just, uh, like, I, 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 I've mixed all my idols. I've mixed Yes, I mixed Queen, I mixed, um, you know, everybody that you could imagine. And and it comes down to those raw records, those raw, like you say, DJ records. You know? 
But the big money records are the ones like you said. Pay my rent. Judas Priest. Yeah. Those kept you those kept you living large at the time. Yeah, and they also gave me good publicity. You know, they gave me write-ups with Brian Chin and Billboard, you know. And and I well, I remember I was a Billboard reporter at one time. Greg Riles used to call me up for my my list. I love Greg. And Greg had a great, great ear. And he always was a dance interior person. Before he went to the garage, he would come visit me. And he'd be like, I'd be like giving him all these imports that I'm 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 charting. He's like, Freddie, you can't chart that. <laughs> you can't, what's blamage? You can't chart that. Nobody's charting that. I said, but that's what I'm playing, Greg. That's what I'm playing. You know that's what I play. He goes, all right. And then, then he wound up at Select Records, and he hired me for a bunch of mixes and productions and my own productions and stuff. Um, I did a song called uh, What About Love, which was a great hip-hop record, hip, hip house record. And it's not on, even on YouTube. I can't find it. Um, and that I told you about my unit being drowned in, in the storm in Ida with my records, my vinyl. Now I don't have a piece of vinyl of it. So that sucks. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I lost most of my vinyl in Ida, the storm Ida. I will never go out with a girl named Ida. I will never name a child Ida. I will never speak to somebody named Ida. (laughs) Do you miss, do you miss that era? Freddie, that era, not, I mean, you're older now, but do you miss the whole, you know, camaraderie and playing those big rooms like that? Because that just doesn't exist anymore in New York like that. Uh, without a doubt, I miss it. It's, it's, it's something that, um, it, like you say, it doesn't exist. And the the thing that you miss about it is that you can't, go there with six crates of records and and play and, and give to the crowd what you want and to give back. I'm noticing that when I play, the crowds are like, when I, I, I just went to two, two clubs, like I said, over, over the past couple of weeks from, uh, from being at a, a movie premiere to, to, uh, to going out, just going out. And the DJs don't seem to care to mix at all. So, it's is is it a lost art? Is is that what we're talking about now? Is it really a lost art? Because don't tell me that, because that really blows my head. No, 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 no. Come on. No, that's just I know the shelter just had a night that they sold out, so that must have been great. No, there's still a lot of great parties. Like Danny Tenegli and Victor Calderon played, and then you got uh, Danny Kravitz yes. doing his 718. And then they had David DePino and, and Joey Yanis for the Garage Union. No, I mean, no, no, no. come on. No, I play in. Well, I got to say that David David DePino and, and Joey are my particular, when I want to go out, I'll go out to hear them because something about David, he, like I told you, it's a mood you're in. David is always in a good fucking mood. He is fabulously in a good mood, and he and he plays like it, and it, and, it, and, it, and that mood goes into the dance floor, and and Joey the same way, but it's just like I, when I used to go hear him at tracks, 
on Tuesdays. To, it's the same thing. I mean, I used to go up to him and thank him. Thank you for making me smile. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's, the way, that's the way it should be. But to give David DePino a lot of credit, a lot of house records in the, in the end of the garage were broken because David played them in the early part of the night. Well, you did. Well, we did Love Your Life You Live by Danny Extravaganza together. He did a mix and he brought, he actually brought Danny to me. I mean, if it wasn't for David, I wouldn't have met Danny. Um, yes, he did break a lot of records early, but I wasn't, I was never there early. I was a late night guy. Oh, he, he was, he was, he was already pushing the envelope, you right. know, like he right. was playing a lot of, like we spent, like him and I would joke, I asked him about the Daryl Pandy record. He broke that record. He played it all the time because he was also playing at the Bulls too. Don't forget, he was part of House Extravaganza. Right. So a lot of things were going on in the scene in New York that was right. happening at those big clubs. But a lot of side things, all of you were involved in at that time too. Right. There was a lot of things going on. Right. Johnny Dinell was playing. There's a lot of great parties going on. Everybody talks about... Johnny Dinell is still playing. Johnny Dinell is like the DJ to the stars. He DJs for Elton. He DJs for Dolce Cabana. He's DJing all over the place. I, I, I know. You know, and he's, he's doing great still. I saw him at the premiere. We went to go see Love is a Legend, that film of the, of the oh, house. Right, right, right. I, he, went to, yeah. I went to see him. He was there. Yeah, I, I, he mentioned it in Facebook. I seen it. Yeah, that's great. Is he in the movie himself also? You know what? Um, Chi Chi is. I know Chi Chi is. She looks fabulous in it, right? Look fantastic. Um, yeah, he's playing the music. You know, we got to realize something at the house of Fields when they did that ball. He was DJing in in the ball, the real video that which they're showing. So yes, he's in the movie. Yes, in essence. So speaking of you now. Everybody talks about they're going to Disney World tomorrow, Freddie. Where are you going from here forward? Are you back looking to start playing music regularly again? I mean, besides and acting, or is he? What are we doing now? Like, what's the plan? I know you're writing a script. We got that, but what's the next? We're move? doing whatever comes naturally. Whatever comes. Um, as far as music, uh, next week I do my first production in. Six months. I haven't been in a studio in six months. So i back in the studio next week. And um, it's a record that I just wrote. And I think it's going to be very good. I know it's going to be good. It's just a matter of getting it out there. It's just so many records come out a day now. It's just, I go to Beatport and it's like, or, and, I, and I also, I go to Beatport and I go to Juno um for, to download my records and um it's just that it seems like so much comes out a day that that you hope you get noticed you know if you don't have a big pr production behind you which right now i don't have a big pr production i am being I, i've been told you, you got to get a social media person and i you, they're probably right i do need a social media person because i i i can't keep up on tiktok and Instagram, and I, I, it's just not what I do. It's just not what I do. Now I imagine, imagine this. Imagine you were playing out like you were then and having all that social media to show everything. 
How crazy would that have been? That's why I say I wish there was photos back then. That's why I say. Man, the photos they could have took back then of us, whew, I'm kind of glad they didn't. <laughs> Yo, pass that this way. Oh, wait, wait. No, no. You're still going to pick you in. As soon as the camera came out, everybody went. Exactly. Right? Everybody's oh, it's like, oh, the cop, it's like somebody saying, yo, lower the music down, Freddie. The cops are outside. What? That the was, cops? That was the after hours. That's the after hours. Yeah, like. Freddie, lower it down. I got to talk to him outside. Yeah. Not, not lower it down. Shut it off. Well, no, first it was lower it. Yeah. Then kill it. Kill it. Yep, 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 yep. Freddie, you're unbelievable, man. You're unbelievable. You, you're, still strong. you're still going strong. You're a true Thank legend you, to our game. We hope you. We hope that you get a six to seven figure deal on your screenplay. You know, I mean, your movie that would be a wonderful thing. And you'll come back to tell us, of course. And I know you still have a lot more hit records to write. There's still this is definitely inside you. This oh, doesn't man. go away. This doesn't go away. That. Thank you very much. I I, I think there's a lot of music in me. I mean. The music is always in you, right? It's in your blood. It's been in my blood since I was a kid. So you came out of your mom's womb with the drums playing. What the hell more than that? Exactly. My, I used to. Real quick, I know we got time. We got. A you got plenty of time. Go ahead, keep going. If you got more, get tell us. I used to walk out of my grammar school, which was down the block from my my apartment building, and hear my father playing drums. That's how loud he was playing. <laughs> So in my house, you you really I really was coming out of the womb with drums in my head. So your father's first name, everybody, Freddie. So Freddie Bestone Senior was the was the drummer at Birdland for how many years? I believe just two. House the house drummer. House drummer. He played with Chet, Chet Baker. He played with Monk. Actually, Chet and Monk were at my my apartment when I was about. Six years old, I remember it because my mother kicked them out of the house at around seven in the morning. I remember waking up to my mother screaming at men and that and a black gentleman and a white gentleman leaving, and my father let, then tell, telling me, "Do you remember your mother?" Yeah, I was Chet and Monk. Your mother kicked out. <laughs> I assume something was going on. She didn't particularly care because you guys, you guys, she had little kids in the house. That's why. Only one kid. I'm a single. I'm the only one. So, so she. I mean, of course, the young Freddie shouldn't be seeing this type of behavior. Basically, Freddie should see these great artists. Are you kidding me? These are the greats. But that that was them. I got news to you. Not when the not with the paraphernalia that was being passed around. And I'm, I'm guessing you're around. He's six or seven years old around that time. This is not for a child to see. Sorry. Well, I wasn't up until she screamed. <laughs> what are y'all doing in here? Y'all gotta go. Get out of my house. <laughs> this is my house. It's my house. It's my house. <laughs> you come up in here eating all our food and shit. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Speaking of food, are you the restaurant? I was going to ask you: Are you all Italian? Complete Italian? No, my mother is Swedish, and 
and uh, Italian. You got some Swedish in you. So your father yeah. owned the Italian restaurant. Where was this restaurant? In the Bronx, by the Park Chester area. What was it called? Patsy's. Not the same Patsy's as... Oh, 50's. wow. I was going to say, holy smoke. Oh, no, no, no. Not the same Patsy's. But we were there first. In the, in the, we, we were there. But back then, copywriting and everything wasn't a big deal. So they opened up one on 56th Street. I believe there's another Patsy's in Harlem. And how long did he have the restaurant till? Or oh, that lasted a very long time. It was my grandfather's, and it was my father's, and then my uncle's. So it went a very long time, about thirty years. So when, you- the, when the neighborhood went, when the neighborhood went, there there was there there was a fire, bad fire, <laughs> Jewish pan fire. Call it what you will. Get fire. You get too much truth out of me. You know what? This this interview is too much. This I never opened up so much to somebody. You that's know? what it's called. You true very, that's, that's it. True house stories. This is really true house stories going on today. You really got me. Well, then again, we're going to say right here, we're going to pause you and say thank you so much for being truthful and being so real. Thank you. It's like it's get me in trouble. Nah, there's nothing here to get you in trouble. This is there's there's a seven year look back. We're past that already. Okay, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Can't be incarcerated for things that Oh, it's actually more than probably seven years. It's probably probably 30 years. For you on some of these things, or 40, some of these things that we're talking about. Yeah, we're going back. It's hard to believe. And this is what I see telling everybody how fast the years are going. 1979 was the first 12 inch I bought. I had to look that up the other day to see when Herb Albert released Rise. I thought it was 1980 that that came out. No, 79. The red vinyl, the red vinyl, the red clear. Mine was clear. Because I have the red version of it. Mine was clear. Mine used to be clear. I don't know what it is now. Well, I had to wash it away. Washed all your sins away, too, and all your dirt. I I still haven't had the nerve to go through my records to see which ones are salvageable and which ones aren't. Still haven't done that. I I separated everything, but now I'm going to go... You know, maybe today's a good day. I took off for this, so. God bless you. Oh my God. <laughs> what a great interview. I wanna I wanna applaud you for everybody because I'll tell you, this is this is about as candid. And you know what? The good thing about it is because we're all in the same industry, we can bring out the technical end, we can talk about the deeper stuff. Cause you if you're not in it, you don't understand what we're talking about. You just don't get it. That's true. And you got it. You've laid it all out. Hang on, Fred. Let me just do this one thing I want to introduce for next week. We got the man behind Technotronic. Remember that pump? Up the jam. Pump it up. Eric Martin coming right here for you and all of us to hear another True House story of how that all came together from the UK side. Technotronic will be here next week. I should say that. Eric Martin. The guy. I was, there, I was there when that broke. I was in England when that broke. That record broke in England, and then it came over here. I was right there. 
They'll, they will they them. Who breaks records like that anymore? Where does it happen to it? Because the problem is there's too much material going That's on. That's what I was trying to say before. When I go to Beatport, I, I oh, there's a new MK record. I want to hear it. But then there's 50 other records. That yeah, wait, wait, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. As you're doing that, you're multitasking and probably checking email. So you forget that you even saw that. And you just go, what the hell was I doing? Phone rings. That's what happens. We're not, we're not doing what we used to do. You'd have your records. You, you, you open them up, you put them on the turntable, and you listen. And you were finding the version that worked for you. And you knew that's going to work for you and your crowd. Now you're just playing digital files. And if you're in a bad mood, it affects how you're listening to those records. They don't have the yeah. same effect. Yeah. It just doesn't have, I go, like today, I go, I don't feel like listening to this crap. And it's not crap. It's just, you just, you just, it's too much. Hey, mood, like I said, is everything. Your mood is everything, like I said before. And back then, I used to be in Rockpool and I used to be in Judy's Pool for the record. I was in two pools. Um, and I used to get, you know, and then, and then besides that, getting stuff sent to me from the UK, from, from record labels, from Gail Brusewitz, from. Yeah, because you're a Dude, you're a tastemaker. You're breaking records. They want you to play their record. Right. Jane Brinton sending them. Brad sending them. Bobby Short, MCA. MCA. You know, just you're getting them in the mail and you're getting it. So you're getting bombarded. But they're calling you and they're calling you asking, did you get my record? Right. Now there's nobody calling you about these records. So So you're just looking at a file and it has two mixes. And if if, like I said, that, that that attention deficit thing, that there are four minutes and 30 seconds, I mean, what if I got to go to the bathroom? <laughs> I used to put my 10-minute mixes on. I'd go to the bathroom. I had to go through the dance interior. I had to go through the dance floor. Or I'd go into a bottle of beer and place it where somebody could take it. <laughs> Like some DJs used to tell me, don't leave, don't leave that booth because you may come back. You may not have a job. Exactly. It was so, rough in New York in those days. Real rough. Hey, it was a very competitive. We were very competitive. All the DJs were competitive. But one thing I did, I never did, is I never broke DJ etiquette. I never went to a club where there was somebody else playing and said, I want that job. I never did that. I know a lot of people did that to me, tried to do that to me. And that's, and I, and I think now, I don't think there is, there is that kind of etiquette. I think. No, I, because it's going, it's, it's going by how many, how many followers do you have? Right. Right. It's not about how you play. It's how many followers. That's even, that's even getting into the acting game. It really is. All algorithm built. It's all algorithm based. Everything's algorithms and who's around you, who's pushing your stuff. I have great Facebook numbers, but I don't know what my Twitter and Instagram thing. I, you know, that's why I got to hire somebody. You have somebody? Yeah. All right. Tell me the name later. Right. Well, we'll talk later. I'll hook you. Don't worry about it. I took care of Marsha Stern too, and she okay. was very happy. Oh, really? You spoke to Marsha Stern? Yes. Yeah, she was on the show with Robbie. Really? 
Yeah, her and Robbie Lesnar. Yeah, Marsha's good people. She worked with my, my guy, and she built the whole Roy Thode site and everything. Yep. Yeah, Marsha used to do the Palladium. Yes, yeah, she's the light. She was the light woman. So, I, so when you're saying about the light show, I know who was working next to you. I had another another light guy that was great when I worked the underground. John Contini used to hire me to play there, and I don't know his name, but he was a great light man. I'm trying to remember his name. Goddamn, I don't want to end like that. But fuck. Is it Robert De Silva? That's it. Yeah, because I remember he worked for me as well at underground. Yeah. I yes. talk about that all the time. Robert the Silva. Robert worked for Nicky Ciano and Larry. Okay. Robert was great. Bobby. Yeah. They called him Bobby the Silva. Right. Bobby. He loved working with me. He's, we had such a blast working together. Great, great light man. Great, great light. Man. Great light man. We had a great rapport working with each other. I shout out to him what I'm doing. And that's, I, I love, you know, Dan's Terry really, really didn't have a light. But Underground day. had the full piano board and mirror. Remember yes. that? Yes. So he'd be able to control. They had, the one thing about it was Richard Long's system, but wasn't one of the better systems. It's just the lights were really dope in that room. Right. And the way it was a narrow room. It was still good. I didn't have a problem with the sound, man. I didn't have a problem. Let me put it like this. If you were to take that club the way it is and set it up now, it'd be the best in the game. Oh, without a doubt. But back then, when you're going up the Goliaths and the, all the other dinosaur clubs like Palladium, Garage, this club, that it was club, definitely top ten. It was top ten. I'm saying it wasn't. It wasn't like we, Louis Vega and I said this all the time. Back then, you had 22 ministries of sound in yeah. New York City. Yeah. It was just like that, and each yeah. one was one was worse, but they were all great, and they all. Yeah, Garage is the greatest of, of the sound, but Studio, uh, Palladium, this club, uh, Four uh, Ds, they all have fantastic elements, lighting, sound. You don't have that now. It's all built on bottle service. Yep. That was when it all ended. I hate sounding like getting off my grass guy, but that bottle service thing killed, killed the way a vibe is in a club. You know what I mean? Killed the dancers, like the real dancers that go to clubs. You don't see that. You don't see people putting on capizios at the club. They they used to come into the DJ booth and put their capizios on and go back out. And they want to dance all night. It's It's a different world. It's a different world. Different, different, different world. Even putting powder down on the dance floor. You can't do that now. Right. You get sued. Yeah. We used to put the powder down and slide all over the bed. We made the night even better. The, oh, you smell the baby powder. You knew you smelled. There was two smells. I always talk about this. Baby powder and ether because they were freebasing or getting high. You knew the smell. It's like it was pre-crack. Then when crack came out, you knew what that smelled like. But the two smells in the room, ether, cigarettes, of course, because everybody smoked back then. Right. And then baby powder being pushed around and everybody in those in those those uh uh what the those wrestling boots the high yes, boots yes 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 yeah and high boots remember those the high yes, boots or the or, or boxing the boxing ones and those the wet- boxing boots i used to have a couple of pants and the wavo pants yeah the wavo pants and then that was the gear of you went to garage you went to it was it was that was the gear. Yeah. And I had my kamikaze shirt on. Yo, I have my bandana. 
It was that was the look back then. I remember it like yesterday. Now everybody's like in. Everybody looks the same. Has the same haircut. You go online. You look at the line on the on the street, and like I don't want to go there. Everybody looks the same. You know. No wavo pants for the way to go. Or Chinese slippers or whatever it was back. They then. say everything comes back around. Let's see. Oh, baby, I need it too. I can't <laughs> wait for that to come back because I'm telling you, I'm ready to get on a plane. I'm ready to go play again around the world. I'm ready to go. I mean, I've been watching some of our friends. They're they're back playing, but they're going through a lot to play. Quarantining to go across the ocean. I mean, it's just like it's a mess right now, but it'll get better. Yeah, it will. It will. It will get better. Everyone, good night. Thank you, Freddie Bastone. As they used to say, the master mix dance boys mixed by Freddie Bastone. Hot 103. <laughs> Thank you, Freddie. Thank you so much. Oh, you great. Thank you so much, Freddie. Stay with me. Everyone, good night around the world. See you all next week.